Morning. Take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, I'm going to read from verse 40 to the end of the chapter. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. The favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege and joy it is for us to be able to open your word this morning that we might hear from you. We pray that as we consider your son Jesus, his person, and his work, that you would give us understanding and insight, that you would give us an ability to focus and pay attention and concentrate. But Father, we pray that this would not just be an intellectual exercise that our time in your word would affect us and change us on just a very practical level. The knowledge of who Jesus is and what he came to do would stir up in us just a great affection and love for him. That the Holy Spirit would, as a result, produce in us a likeness to him. We ask this in his name, for his glory. Amen. So we're picking it back up in the Gospel of Luke, and this morning we come to a really interesting but maybe not that well-known narrative. You remember the last time we were in Luke chapter 2, we covered verses 21 through 39, right? Jesus' circumcision on the eighth day of his life, and then uh, the offering and the dedication at the temple on the 40th day of his life, Uh, and is there while they're in Jerusalem at the temple— that they run into Simeon and they run into Anna and they both rejoice that the long-awaited Messiah is finally here. And so day 39, uh, sorry, verse 39 leaves us off at around day 40 of Jesus's life. And then you'll see chapter 3 picks it up when Jesus is about 30 years old, which means that our passage, right, chapter 2 verses 40 to 52 basically covers everything from day 40 
to age 30 of Jesus' life. Here you see we get a summary statement in the beginning. Look at verse 40. Uh, that takes us from day 40 to age 12. And then we have one story from when Jesus is 12 years old. And then we get another summary statement at the end in verse 52. And that summary statement basically covers age 12 to age 30. And so one story is all that we have from the first basically 30 years of Jesus' life here in Luke. And you look around at the other Gospels, you look at Matthew, you look at Mark, you look at John, you're not going to find any stories of his childhood, at least after the family comes back from Egypt. Which means the New Testament is 7,957 verses across 260 chapters across 27 books. Verses 41 to 51, right? Those 11 verses, that's all that we have from day 40 to age 30 of our Lord's life. Which reminds us that the Gospels aren't just like a straight line biography of Jesus' whole life. Uh, they're, they're focused narrative, uh, really focused on the days before his crucifixion. But let's be honest, right? there's a, at least a part of us that kind of itches for a little bit more information. Like, what was he like with his friends growing up? What kind of older brother was he? I mean, can you imagine being one of his half-brothers, like, like James or Jude, growing up with a literally perfect older brother? It's like, man, I get blamed for everything. Well, it's because you are to blame for everything. What was he interested in? Like, what did he do with his free time? What kind of food did Jesus like growing up? Those questions are natural. And that curiosity led to some interesting stories being made up about Jesus' childhood in apocryphal books. Uh, books like the Gospel of Thomas and the Proto-Evangelium of James. And so you've got stories about Jesus performing all kinds of miracles as a child. There's one about him stretching out a piece of wood that his father Joseph had cut too short. Things like that. That's not surprising that such stories would be invented because the miraculous, the fantastic, right, that, that stuff grasps our attention, that captivates our interest. But that makes this account, this true biblical account from the Gospel of Luke, all that more intriguing to us because it's so seemingly ordinary and unmiraculous. Right? This is a, a very straightforward story of Jesus' parents losing track of him and then going back and finding him. That's all that we have from his childhood. Which means at least two things. First, uh, the rest of his childhood, as curious as we might naturally be about it, it's not necessary for us to know. I think this is a really important thing for us as believers to understand uh, the sufficiency of the scriptures, the sufficiency of the Bible. God has, uh, in his word, which includes, of course, the gospel of Luke, given us everything that we need for life and godliness, uh, either by explicit statement in the Bible or natural logical implication. And so there remain mysteries, uh, there remain unknowns, like Jesus' childhood, but we can take comfort knowing that there aren't things that we need to know for salvation and sanctification and faithful holy living that aren't in the scriptures. Second is this. If this is the one story that we have from basically 30 years of his life, 
Well, we ought to pay very close attention. This isn't just throwaway. This isn't just filler. Remember Luke's mission here. He's done his meticulous research. And now he's writing an orderly account for Theophilus so that Theophilus might have certainty concerning the things that he's been taught. And so Luke's inclusion of this story, God the Holy Spirit's inclusion of this one story, is intentional and purposeful and deliberate. Like there is a reason why this is in our Bibles. You'll remember what John said about his gospel. And it's true for Luke as well. If every one of the things that Jesus did were written, the world itself could not hold the books that would be written. And so with any narrative, but especially with this one, the one story that we have from a 30-year span of Jesus' life, we need to be thinking about why this? Why this of all stories? Why is this included? Especially because on the surface, it seems so unspectacular. But before we get to our verses, uh, there's one thing I just kind of need to address up front. Because unless you have at least some understanding of this, uh, the rest of the sermon is going to be really confusing. Uh, and that's the idea of the hypostatic union. Now, for some of you, this will be new. For some of you, this will be just review. But I think it'll be helpful for all of us to make sure that we are on the same page here. So in the early church, uh, there's a lot of discussion about Jesus. Like, who is Jesus, his person? Like, he's clearly God, right? In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He's clearly God, but he's also very clearly a man. He was born of woman. He's subject to the same human limitations of tiredness and hunger and physical weakness and even death that you and I are. And so he's clearly God and he's clearly man. But now how do those two things interact? How do those two natures come together? The answer is the hypostatic union. Now you look in your Bibles for the term hypostatic union and you are not going to find anything. But in the same way, you look in your Bibles for the word Trinity and you're not going to find anything. Uh, The Trinity is not explicitly defined in the scriptures. The Trinity is one God in three persons. But the idea of the Trinity is all over the pages of Scripture. Well, in the same way, the Bible doesn't explicitly define for us the hypostatic union. But again, the idea is all over the Scriptures. And so in the year 451, at the Council of Chalcedon, there's a group of theologians, pastors, they they come together and they discuss the Bible's teaching on this topic. And they carefully define what it means that Jesus is both God and man. And so they say that Jesus is, in his incarnation, both fully 100% human and fully 100% divine. Two natures in one person. That's the hypostatic union. And so both natures, right, the human nature and the divine nature, exist in the one person of Jesus. But he's not like half human and half divine, or like switching back and forth between being human and divine. And it's not like the two natures just mix together so that you can't tell them apart anymore. Uh, The natures remain distinct and yet are inseparably united in the person of Christ. He's fully God. And so he always retains every divine attribute of deity, 
Right? Jesus is always omnipotent and omniscient and eternal, but he's also fully man. You remember Philippians chapter 2, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And so he empties himself, not in the sense of losing deity or losing divine attributes, otherwise he would cease to be God, which is impossible, but he empties himself by taking on, by adding humanity, being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus, in his incarnation, he gives up certain rights and prerogatives of deity, and he takes on certain limitations of humanity. That's the hypostatic union. The the biblical teaching that Jesus is both fully, totally, truly God and fully, totally, truly man. So now with that in mind, let's go to our text. Look at verse 40. Verse 40 is the opening summary statement. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, that's one of those verses, a nice short verse there. We can easily skip it over. But let's just park here and think for a moment what this verse is actually saying. It's saying that Jesus went through the ordinary growth and development of a human being. He grew. He became strong. Remember, he was born as a baby, right? It's not like he appeared on a cloud as a fully grown man, ready to redeem his elect upon arrival. No, he grew physically. He got taller, and he got heavier, and he got stronger, and he got older. One easy way to see this is just by looking at the words that Luke uses in this chapter. So hopefully you have Luke chapter 2 in front of you. Look at verse 16. Jesus is described as the baby lying in a manger. Now look at verse 27. He's described as the child, Jesus. Now look ahead to verse 43. He's described as the boy, Jesus. And that's a good job by the ESV in using three different English words there because it's three different words in the Greek. And Luke's not just trying to use variation for the sake of variation. He's making a point. He's making the same point that he's making in verse 40, that Jesus developed and grew. And that culminates in verse 52, He's no longer the child Jesus. He's no longer the boy Jesus. He's just plain Jesus, which is what he's going to be for the rest of the gospel. So Jesus undergoes a normal development and growth. That is, his childhood was, in many ways, ordinary. And let me prove that to you in another way. Keep your eye on verse 40, okay, chapter 2, verse 40, and look back to the last verse of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 80. Look at what Luke says about the development and growth of John the Baptist. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. The only difference between that verse and chapter 2, verse 40, is that in spirit, in 180, is replaced by filled with wisdom in 240. Otherwise, Luke's description of the two children is exactly identical. And that similarity is intentional. Luke, and for that matter, God the Holy Spirit, the ultimate author of Scripture, careful writers. We, the readers, were supposed to see this parallel 
we're supposed to see that Jesus' growth and his development was in many ways very, very similar to John's. And John, John the Baptist, well, he's just a regular human being. He's just like you and me in our growth and development. Let me drive this point home by showing you one more parallel. Look at verse 52. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. In stature and in favor with God and man. Hold that in mind. And now look to the Old Testament and see what it says about Samuel's growth and development. 1 Samuel 2.26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Friends, that's the exact same description. Jesus' growth and his development wasn't all that different from John's, and it wasn't all that different from Samuel's. Now, part of that growth and development was physical, but another part of that growth and development was mental and intellectual. He also grows in, look again at verse 40, wisdom. He became strong, filled with Wisdom. Now that's fascinating to think about. Maybe you've never really given this much thought. But Jesus learned things. Like in his growth and development, just like you and I learn things. And this is where our understanding of the hypostatic union is super helpful. Because in his deity, of course, Jesus is omniscient. He knows all things. Forget about being a a baby or or a child. He has eternally existed as the omniscient God. But in his incarnation, he voluntarily chooses not to express his omniscience at times. He doesn't cease to be omniscient. Later we're going to see that he knows people's innermost thoughts. But he also, in his human nature, doesn't know certain things. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Omniscience concerning his return is one of the things that he voluntarily chooses not to express in his incarnation. And for our context, in his incarnation, Jesus voluntarily chooses not to express his omniscience as a child. And so he learned things. Verse 40 says that he increased in wisdom. I mean, just think about that. Even the basics, right? Like God created the trees and the animals. Well, that same God is learning, just like any other kid, about trees and animals. And the God who created the order and the logic that uh, structure and govern our universe, well, he's learning the rules of logic and math and physics. The same God who confused the languages of people at Babel is himself learning the Hebrew alphabet. Most directly here, we've been talking about uh, in our study of Proverbs and Sunday school, wisdom is living in the fear of the Lord, knowledge applied to living a life glorifying to God. Well, Jesus grew. Jesus increased in that wisdom. He increased and grew in his understanding of God's word, uh, in his understanding of God's will, in his understanding of God's person, in his understanding of God's purposes. And so in that sense, he was made like his brothers in every respect. Hebrews 2.17. But 
let's keep our balance here with the hypostatic union. Because Jesus is not just fully, totally, truly man. He's also fully, totally, truly God. And so we need to be careful here and we need to acknowledge that while Jesus' growth and development was similar to any other human beings, his growth and development was also altogether different from ours. And that difference comes from three crucially important words in Hebrews 4.15. He's one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's just like us, yet without sin. And so his physical growth and his mental development, and most importantly, his spiritual growth, were completely unaffected by sin. For example, he learns about sin by learning the law of God, but he never experiences committing sin himself, unlike us. And he learns about God, but he never has a blasphemous thought about God, like us. All other children have foolishness bound up in their hearts, and they need wisdom to drive out that innate foolishness. But Jesus' heart had no foolishness to compete with the wisdom that he was increasing with. So he has a perfectly sanctified growth and development that is altogether unlike ours. We're about 25 minutes in here. We've covered like half of one verse, but I promise all the work that we just did, it really is going to set the stage for the rest of the story. Look at verse 41. And his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. So now we're getting into the narrative here. Uh, Jesus, he's along with his family. They go up to Jerusalem for the Passover. If you read through the Old Testament law, there's three feasts that uh, all Jewish men were obligated to go to Jerusalem for each year. There's the Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. And the Passover and the accompanying uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, right? That was like the big celebration. That was a full week of remembering God's deliverance of the Israelites from bondage in Egypt. So Joseph and Mary, we've already seen their faithfulness to the law earlier in this chapter. We see them again being faithful in making the 80-mile journey. It's a three-day, four-day journey to bring their family to Jerusalem for the Passover. Look at how Luke purposely draws attention to their faithfulness. Because he doesn't just say, when he was 12 years old, his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. Because the story would have functioned exactly in the same way if he had said that. But instead, he says, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Luke is purposely bringing our attention to the fact that Joseph and Mary were faithful believers and their faithfulness was displayed in their consistent attendance of the gathering of God's people. Quick application here for us. I think Joseph and Mary, and for that matter Luke, I think they would count it very strange that professing Christians 
People who claim to be believers, faithful believers, that professing Christians would regularly miss church. That they would regularly miss the corporate worship gathering. And of course, providential hindrances arise from time to time. But friend, if going to church is basically like a game time decision every week, if being with the body for worship isn't a top priority in your life, I think you ought to seriously examine whether you're even in the faith. Because God's people in every age, Joseph and Mary, are those who gather to worship him. So Joseph and Mary are faithful to go every year. Uh, And so in many senses, this is a year like any other. It's It's a pilgrimage like all the other ones that we've gone on. But on this particular occasion, when Jesus is 12 years old, the family sets out to go home and Jesus stays behind. Now, back then, they would have traveled in large caravans uh, for safety and for fellowship. So you just kind of picture in your mind large groups from the small town of Nazareth. They're traveling together. Everybody knows each other. And so, uh, really, the road trip is like half the fun, right? But the downside of traveling in a large group, well, is exactly what happens here. Now, anybody in this room who has been a parent for long enough, well, we've got to be really careful not to pass judgment here on Joseph and Mary because we've done the exact same thing. Remember last summer, we're at the beach. Really hot day, perfect beach weather. Beach is packed. And I was playing with one of the kids in the water and my wife was with the other two kids digging in the sand, which is all great and wonderful, except we have four kids where's Paxton? Like, I thought he was with you. Like, no, I thought he was with you. And that's when the dread and the panic set in. It's like, where's Waldo out there? And you're like scanning the the ocean and you're scanning the the beach and you're, you're looking for your son. And there he is. He's holding some concerned old lady's hand. He's got a big smile across his face like nothing's wrong. Supposing him to be in the group. And so maybe Mary thought he was with Joseph. And Joseph thought that he was with Mary. Or maybe they both assumed that he was with his friends. We don't know exactly what happened. What we do know is that they didn't realize he was missing until they had traveled an entire day. Right? They would have met up at night and kind of made sure everybody was together. And it's only at night that they realize that their son is not with them. No cell phones. No find my friends. Right? So they have to just turn around and rush back to Jerusalem. It's another full day. And after searching for him all day on the third day, they finally find him in the temple. And what's he doing? We'll look at verses 46 to 48. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. So there's Jesus. He's with the experts. He's with the teachers. But he's not just sitting on the fringes, kind of taking it all in as a a bystander or as an observer. No, he is right there in the midst of them, listening to them, learning from them, asking them questions, answering their questions. You can imagine Jesus asking questions that would have shown a great grasp of the law. 
Or Jesus answering questions, the questions of the teachers, in a way that shows just a deep understanding of God's word. Jesus making connections uh, to uh, David and Adam and Hezekiah and drawing inferences from Micah and, and Zephaniah and Jeremiah. I mean, wouldn't you have loved to be a fly on the wall for that? Just to listen to 12-year-old Jesus go back and forth with the experts of the law. It says all who heard were amazed at his understanding and his answers. It's kind of like when he's older. Luke 4, 32. They were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority. And so we see even a, a small foreshadowing of that here. Even at the young age of 12. But as amazed as the people were hearing Jesus answer these questions, well, as parents, look at verse 48, they're astonished, but not for the same reasons. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. But now look at Jesus' response, verse 49. And pay close attention. If you have your own Bibles, you might want to underline this verse because this response is the main point of this passage. We have here the first recorded words of Jesus, really the only recorded words of Jesus until he's 30. He said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? You see that contrast there. Your father and I have been searching for you. I must be in my father's house. That's the point of this narrative, right? That's the point of this story. That's why this story is in our Bibles. This contrast between your father and my father. I must be in my father's house. See, there's a few places in the Old Testament uh, towards the end of the book of Isaiah in which God is referred to as our father, uh, Israel's father, and Israel is collectively referred to as God's son in a redemptive and covenantal sense in a few other places. But nobody, not Abraham, not Moses, not David, not Elijah, nobody in the Old Testament ever referred to God directly as my father. But that's exactly what Jesus does here. And that's exactly what he's going to do for the rest of his life. Now, to understand the significance of that, let's flip over one book to the Gospel of John. John chapter 5. The context here in John 5 is that Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath and the Pharisees are attacking him for healing someone on the Sabbath. Look at John 5, verses 17 and 18. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, my father, making himself equal with God. By saying my father and referring to God and calling him his father individually, well, Jesus was making himself equal with God. That's exactly what he meant. And that's exactly how the Pharisees understood it. And that's why they wanted so badly to kill him. 
I must be in my father's house. That, friends, is a declaration of deity. Jesus here, at age 12, he is declaring a unique relationship with God. He fully understands who he is, God's son. Remember what we read earlier in verse 40? That he grows in wisdom. And so he was not born with this knowledge, so to speak. But as he reads the scriptures, as he learns about God, as he learns about God's purposes from the Bible, as he learns about the prophesied Messiah, he comes to understand that he himself is God the Son. I must be in my father's house. Yes, Joseph, he is my adoptive human father, but God is my father. Nazareth is where my house is, but the temple in Jerusalem is my father's house. Mary and Joseph, did you not know? Which implies that Mary and Joseph should have known. They should have known from what the angel Gabriel said. And what the shepherds told them about their angelic encounter. And then what Simeon and Anna said in the temple courtyard. And they also should have known from just witnessing 12 years of raising him. This is no ordinary child. Now, they wouldn't have had a a well-developed, like, Athanasian Trinitarianism like we might. But they knew that he was the son of God. But they didn't really know who he was. Did you not know? But Jesus knows exactly who he is. He's God. He is equal with God. But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. But it's not just an understanding of who he is that he expresses here. It's also an understanding of what he came to do, his mission, his work. Suppose someone was looking for you at, I don't know, 11 p.m. on a Tuesday night. You would say to them, did you not know that I would be at home? But look at what Jesus says. It's not, did you know that I would be in my father's house? No, no, no. It's, did you not know? I must be in my father's house. Must. It's a word that we're only going to see the full significance of as we go further along in this gospel. But it's a word that Jesus uses over and over and over throughout the Gospel of Luke to emphasize the divine necessity of his mission. That the Son of Man must go as it has been determined. That he's received a charge from the Father that he must fulfill. Luke 4.43 I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to all the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. I must fulfill my purpose. Luke 9.22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and killed and on the third day be raised. 
Luke 13, 33. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And so he sets his face to Jerusalem. Luke twenty two thirty seven, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Again, we see must use the divine necessity of fulfilling the work that God the Father has given him to do. Luke 24, 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so at age 12, Jesus not only understands who he is, he's the son of God. He also understands what he's come to do, his mission to do his father's will. And the point, right, the point, remember the contrast between your father and my father. The point is that his being the son of God and his doing the will of the father supersedes all other things in his life, including any and all human relationships or expectations, even those of his human parents, Joseph and Mary. Like who he is, what he's come to do, his person and his work, that takes precedence over even the closest family ties. And that's the point that he's going to make later on when he says, who are my mother and my brothers? For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. But lest you think that he's going to start his public ministry on the very next day, well, we're actually going to have to wait another 18 years for that. I mean, you think about this, right? Jesus has just declared himself to be God, my father. And he's just declared the necessity of his mission. I must be in my father's house. But the very next thing that it says about him, look at verse 51. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. That is remarkable. Well, look, we're half expecting him to make his grand entrance onto the world stage, if you will, uh, for him to stay in Jerusalem and just kind of kick off his ministry. But no, he goes back to Nazareth. Small, insignificant Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Luke then goes out of his way to tell us that he was submissive to his parents as if to correct any wrong notions that we might have that now that he's declared himself to be God well he no longer has to obey his parents uh, that the priority of his mission means that he doesn't have to submit to them anymore no he obeys them and he's submissive to them even though and this is the, the, the irony of this passage He obeys them and he submits to them even though he knows exactly who he is and what he came to do. And they, look at verse 50, they clearly don't get it. Why? Well, think about the divine necessity of his mission. He does that exactly because it was God's purpose for him to do that. For Jesus to be in Nazareth 
to obey and submit to his parents until his hour should come. And so now we can answer the question that we had in the beginning. Like, why? Why? Of, of everything that surely happened in the first 30 years of Jesus' life, why is this the one story that God has given to us? The answer is that Jesus came to do his Father's will. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's John six thirty seven. And so it's fitting and it's purposeful that the only thing that we learn about his childhood is the one event that's perhaps most illuminating in that regard. You follow what I'm saying? Like, if his purpose on earth was to do miracles, then it would have been fitting for Luke to have given us a story of him doing a miracle. If his purpose on earth was to heal the sick, then Luke would have probably given us a story of him healing the sick. But his purpose on earth was to, as the Son of God, fulfill the Father's will. And so the only story that we have, well, it's a story whose main point is the declaration of that truth. I must be in my father's house. But now, of course, we need to ask, what was the will of the father that he came to do? We know all these things that he must do, but why must Jesus do all of these things? What ultimately was Jesus' mission. We've heard me say this before from this book. The ultimate mission of Jesus is Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He came to save lost sinners like you and like me. And that's why he must do all of these things. That's why the Son of Man must suffer many things. The reason Jesus came into the world, the reason for the incarnation, the reason for the hypostatic union, the reason that Jesus became fully man while remaining fully God was so that he could save sinners. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so this same Jesus, he's 12 years old in our story, 18 years or so later, he would begin his public ministry. And throughout, he was holy, innocent, unstained. But his own people did not receive him. The same kinds of teachers who engaged with him in this friendly back and forth when he was 12, well, they would later seek to kill him. And kill him they did. They hung him on a cross. But you see, it's on that cross that Jesus took upon himself all of our sins. He takes our sin, and in exchange, he gives us his perfect righteous record. And as the bearer of our sin, taking upon himself all of the sin that sinners like you and me have ever committed against a holy God— He suffers the wrath of God and he dies in our place. But Jesus didn't remain in the grave. We saw in our narrative today, Mary and Joseph, they search for Jesus 
And when they can't, when they find him on the third day, he asks them a question. Why were you looking for me? Well, later on in the gospel, it's a different group. Luke only identifies them as the women who had come with him from Galilee. Now it's their turn to search for Jesus. But they're not searching for him on the third day because they left town without him. And they're searching for him because the stone was rolled away. And this time it's not Jesus who asks the revealing question. It's two angels, Luke 24, 5. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Jesus rose again. His tomb is empty. He has defeated death and sin and the devil on behalf of all those who would trust in him. And so all of this, right, his, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his glorious resurrection, the gospel, Jesus must do all of these things because he came to do the Father's will And this is the will of my father, John 6, 40, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And so I implore you today to look and live and to look on Jesus, his person and his work, who he is and what he came to do and so be saved. Because of our sin against the holy God, each and every one of us deserves an eternity in hell. But the good news is that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The good news of the gospel is that if you repent of your sins and trust in him today, you too can have eternal life. I'll give you one quick application as we close out here. And this is an application for the believers in the room those of you who have been born again, those of you who are Christians, it's to rejoice in your adoption. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? One of the most glorious truths in the entire Bible is that for those who trust in Christ, you've been united to him. So that it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ. And one of the glorious implications of that is that you, in Christ, are a son of God. You've been adopted as a child of God. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You'll remember how I said earlier, no Jew back then would have said, my father, in referring to God. Look at what Jesus says to Mary Magdalene after his resurrection. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. You see that? My father and your father. Friends, God is our father. God is your father if you are a Christian. God is my father because of the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. And so Galatians 4, 6, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, 
Abba, Father. So my brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, my brothers and sisters who in Christ are all sons and daughters, children of the same Father, my exhortation to you this morning is simply to rejoice in that truth every single hour. Rejoice that because he is your father, you can go to him always in prayer. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Rejoice that you can cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you as a father with his children is compassionate. So he asks us to cast our burdens upon him. Rejoice that if you are a child, then you are also an heir, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Rejoice that you will never taste the full judgment for your sins that you deserve. But when you pass from this life to the next, you are just beginning to live forever in the presence of your Father. Rejoice. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who in full deity and full humanity came to do your will, which is to seek and save the lost. So Father, we pray that we who are your people would place our trust in him and him alone, that we would look to him and him alone for our salvation. And Father, we pray for those in this room who do not know you, or that even today would be the day of their salvation. Father, we rejoice in the fact that we can call you our Father, my Father, for you indeed have adopted us as your sons, as your daughters, through Christ Jesus. And so we pray that we would never overlook that glorious truth, but that we would hide it in our hearts all the days of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.